Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumter, and today we're going to be talking with Tracy Burns, who is a senior analyst at the OECD Center for Educational Research and Information. That's a mouthful. OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and it's an international organization that works to build better policies for better lives. Tracy, how are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you this morning. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's going to be a treat. Um, Would you uh, introduce yourself and tell a little bit about your story? Sure, I'd love to. I'm, uh, well, Tracy Burns. It's my name, as you said. I am a researcher who studied child development and uh, well-being of children and then have now have I've now moved across the pond to Paris. I'm originally from Canada. Um, moved across the pond to Paris to work with educational stakeholders on their issues and concerns uh, around their children and and sort of the future of education. Um, interesting. So how did you do this? I can't imagine that that as a as a small child you sat in the sandbox and went, I know what I want to be when I grow up. So, 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 how did you get here? Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely not. And in fact, I, I used to be envious of people who were certain of what they wanted to do with their lives, and now I, I'm almost slightly suspicious. Um, but that might just be self-justification. Um, for me, it was very much a, a question of being passionate about the research questions I was doing, which were in experimental psychology. And then eventually thinking that I wanted to do something a little bit more applied, a little bit more day-to-day. And for me, the obvious link was to go into education research, which is much more applied to the day-to-day life of children. Um, And to be very honest, I simply applied online for my job. It was a one-year position. I thought it looked great, and I thought one year in Paris would be a wonderful opportunity and a really exciting adventure. Huh. Well, well, yeah. That, that's that's a great story. So so you get you get there. You you've applied for this job for a year. You get there, and it turns into a major chunk of your career. Um, there's got to be some thread of deep curiosity that compels you to 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 do what you're doing. What, what's oh, that yeah, about? Absolutely. What what what, what yeah. are you curious about? Yeah, I mean, for me, I have to say one of the reasons, it's been 15 years now that I've been there, and one of the reasons is um, that we work with a governing board of countries, and so it's the countries that that sort of dictate what it is we're working on. It's it's not a standard research institution. Um, And one of the things that I've always deeply appreciated is the freedom that we're given to pursue intellectual interests. So there's we're in the Center for Research and Innovation, so the innovation is important. And being able to sort of turn and twist and follow interesting issues that are important for countries, but also intellectually important also for myself as well as for the research world, has has been, I would say, what kept me so motivated and so connected to this to this work. So, so what do you actually do? What's your job? What, yeah, well, I'm a senior analyst, which is OECD speak for uh, team manager, project leader, researcher. Um, it's a very different set of, 
of tasks, actually. I, my day-to-day is, is thinking about if I'm in Paris, it's thinking about my teams and my projects and kind of setting the strategic vision for our work and, and sort of our research questions and making sure everything is lined up so my teams can do their job. Um, if I'm not in Paris, which is fairly often, I'm traveling around. Um, normally, countries will invite me to, for example, give a keynote to start a strategic... Uh, they, they often are right now doing um, two-year strategic planning processes where they want someone like me to come in and give a speech to start them off and, and inspire them to think a little bit about the broad picture before they get into the nitty-gritty details of their own system. Um, so depending on where I am, it's you know giving speeches, meeting people, forging partnerships, or um, sitting with the team back at back in Paris and and coming up with the next cool questions that we're going to answer with our research. So so I, I noticed that that um, your PhD is in language acquisition, and um, it happens to be a particular interest of mine. Um, uh, what what did you learn studying language acquisition that oriented you for this work researching digital uh, well-being? Um, hmm, good question. I mean, I was originally hired, I can say this for um, anyone who's wondering about the transferability of PhD research skills. I was originally hired simply because I had good methodological research skills and, and the, my actual background was not particularly relevant to the task that they wanted me to do. My, the tools I had were, but the, the content I had was not as, as important. Um, now it's come for full circle and um, because I'm working with issues around children and technology, a lot of that does connect to child development sort of at its, in its basic form and also as part of that social development psychosocial development, and, and, of course, linguistic development. That's very interesting. So, so let's, let's step back out for a second. And t- tell me about the OECD Center for Education, Research, and Innovation. What's the, what's the charter? Um, how do you tell if you're doing a great job, and what are the, some, of the, some of the sort of landmark things that would help me understand the role and intent of the Center for Education, Research, and Innovation? Mm-hmm. So part of the OECD, so you've, uh, we have 36 member countries in the OECD. Um, the Center for Educational Research and Innovation was the first body within the OECD that was established to look at education. Um, and this is you know, a long history of being primarily motivated by economic markets and the labor market and then realizing that education in and of itself is, is sort of a worthwhile and, in fact, extremely important thing to look at. Um, and we were tasked as a center with trying to think through sort of the future of education, how can we prepare students for the future world, Education is by itself an exercise in future preparation because the children of today will be, um, you know, the, the citizens and parents, et cetera, of tomorrow. Um, and so one of the things was really having the conversation around is education fit for purpose? Is What can we do to innovate? How can we move to the time? And how can we build the research base that's needed to understand and inform policy? Um, so what we do, we work with our countries and I would say that the biggest, the biggest sort of 
clarity we have on whether we're doing our job right is whether the countries are happy with our work or find it useful or using our work because it's very nice to write long research reports, but if they're not actually making a difference in countries, then we're missing our mark. So, so, so overall, the, the Center for Education Research and Innovation is focused on the relationship between education and sort of successful life in the nation sometime out in the future. I assume that means that you do some thinking, or at least the center does some thinking about what skills we're trying to develop. Is is that right? And 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 how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean that's a huge topic, and not just ours. We're we're part of a broader directorate for education and skills, and that's one of the main tasks for the directorate as a whole. Um, thinking about competencies for the 21st century the kinds of, you know, the basic skills around arithmetic and literacy and and numeracy and then really thinking, well, okay, if we're going to have a much more global and interactive world, we'll need some global competencies. Um, if we want children to be more creative or if we expect the workforce to be more creative, then we actually have to think about social and emotional skills, things like collaboration and, and being able to work together and problem solve together. Those are the kinds of skills that is, are also very much a part of the mandate of the broader directorate where we're trying to really think about, you know, balancing the kind of traditional understanding of what education is preparing students to do with what we would expect people to need in a modern world. Um, and that conversation is very much alive and, and very much playing out in all of our countries because, of course, the more sort of new things you want people to teach, the more you have to question if there's time for the old thing. And for teachers, this is a very dis- different role for them. They they have to switch what they're doing and the content and our, our evaluation mechanisms aren't always very well lined up for that. So it's it's um, it's not always a smooth transition for, for education systems, and that's one of the things we're, we're really working on helping them with. Now, that's interesting. Let me ask you another quick question. Well, it's not a quick question, but I'll pretend. Um, the... The education systems that I'm aware of are really great at producing industrial workers, and there's some pretty significant question about whether they're fit for purpose for um, producing capable members of a post-industrial society. Uh, I assume that's something that you think about, and and that there are both sort of structural and content components to your thinking. Can you give me a couple of minutes about, about uh, I assume there's a link there with being responsible digital citizens and the outcomes of the education system. So let's, let's start there. Okay. Um, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> the, yeah. um... I said, it was a quick question. <laughs> I love the quick questions, which are actually incredibly difficult to answer. Well done. Um, yeah, no. So, I mean, if we want to think about digital citizenship, I mean, if, if you think about, okay, let's break that down. Um, you need to think, at, if you're an education system or, in fact, if you're a country, you need to think, okay, can we give access to the technology for children uh, and for, for adults of two, of course? Two, of course. Um, and the good news is in most OECD countries, uh, the answer to that, that first digital divide, do people have access to the technology? The answer is yes. 
at 97%, 98% of 15-year-olds report that they have access to uh, the Internet on a day-to-day basis. Um, the second element is, is the skill piece, you know. So can you use that Internet, and do you understand what your opportunities are? And this is where it's much more dismaying because we see a huge gap developing between not just countries, but there are, of course, differences between better off or uh, wealthier countries and less wealthy countries, but within citizens within an individual country, we're seeing a very clear and growing distinction in the kinds of skills that young children and students are developing um, and, and very much favoring you know, the, the, the ones who are most traditionally advantaged. So that's concerning from a, from a policy perspective as well as, of course, a, a, a general education perspective. And then when we think of digital citizenship, we go even one step further, which is, okay, it's not just about, you know, using the computer to do your emails or to write the report you need to write, but thinking about sort of the holistic person, um, being a citizen, contributing, being positive and proactive, uh, the sort of etiquette that we have and the norms and values that we have as individuals in our day-to-day life are also important to translate to a digital sphere. And that's, you know, that would, I would say is sort of the, the looming policy challenge for countries as they start to address the youth divide and, you know, building up the skills of, of their students. They also then have to think about, well, you know, one step further, how do we develop these very well-rounded citizens? Because it's not just about preparing people for the labor market, as you point out. The labor market is changing all the time. We do expect a very fluid and flexible set of skills from graduates. Um, and that's something that education is really pushing itself to keep up with. Um, and I think some countries have, have, you know, are rising to the challenge. I don't think it's quite as focused in an ind- industrial market as, as some people might think it is. But there's definitely room for improvement. Uh, and certainly with this third step, the sort of broader citizenship questions, I think that's where we'll, we'll be seeing a lot of action in the years to come from countries. So, so I hear a lot of talk about moving people towards I'm not sure I like the term soft skills, but 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 skills that are less technical, and and at the same time, what, because I research AI pretty intensively, um, what I'm noticing about the deployment of of AI is now we've got a bunch of machines that have a bunch of opinions, and um, they present information as casino odds, and they're often wrong. And so, so one of the skills that, that may not be so soft that, that I wonder about is teaching people how to use probabilistic information and teaching people how to, to consider all the time that their machine partners may be mistaken. Um, is, mm-hmm. is that part of your, your uh, horizon line for, for what children need to know to be effective? Absolutely. I think, I mean, I think so just to start with the soft skill comment, uh, one of the things we point out is that, you know, the hard skills, so, so computers and under digital skills are often considered hard skills. Um, but when you look at sort of digital skills as a, as a composite, you see the technical skills and you see sort of programming skills as part of it, operational skills. Those are all part of a definition of digital skill, but so are creativity so is the social aspect of using technology. So even within a so-called hard skill like digital skills, you've got very important social components which are actually embedded in there and which are 
just as important, some would argue more important, to being able to succeed in a digital world. Um, to go to your broader question around what do children need to know, I mean, absolutely being able to access and verify the authenticity of information, um, which adults have a very hard time doing, <laughs> even very even yeah. very sophisticated and, and skilled adults. Um, that is definitely one of the skills that they will increasingly need to be able to hone. Um, they themselves admit, I mean, the research we've done, it's quite clear that they don't feel comfortable, they're not sure, um, and they're aware of that. They're, they don't, they, when they're very young, they feel like everything is, is, they trust everything that they see. But as, as their awareness grows, and especially if they're trained to identify sort of security issues or potentially false information, they do get better at, at knowing that they don't know. They don't necessarily get better at identifying the false information, but they at least know that they shouldn't trust it blindly, which is a first good step. Um, but this is absolutely on our radar, this kind of being able to, to, you know, be able to test the quality of what we're being fed, question some of the, the, the basics and the algorithms that have shaped the information that we're being fed, thinking through some of the implications for the choices that were made uh, way, you know, way upstream that is now producing this current set of, of search results, for example. These are all things that, that are part of the discussion. That's great. So you recently pulled together a report about teaching children about being responsible digital citizens. Tell me about the research and what you discovered. Um, well, this was super fun um, in, my, in my nerdy research hat. Um, we got to, you know, we wanted to really think outside of education, so sort of to push our education counterparts in countries to lift their heads from the day-to-day of their work um, and look around at sort of broader well-being issues around physical health, emotional well-being, um, the power and risks of technology, and also families and peers, the relationships that they the relationships that they form, and how digital technology is um, is influencing it or being influenced by it. Um, and so, one of the things that that we did is really start to ask the questions. Okay, we say the project is called 21st Century Children, which is a very catchy name for the OECD. Um, we're not marketing people, so for us it's a catchy name. Um, and, and, you know, it evokes a lot of excitement. People are very excited. It's a new century. So much has changed. There's all these new things. Um, and as part of that comes quite a bit of hype, you know, and, and potentially some myths around, you know, the fact that the world is totally different or children have totally changed. Digital natives, my God, they're, they're totally different than everybody who came before. Um, and so one of the things we wanted to do was kind of question some of those things and start also with an examination of what has not changed. For example, children still need love. They still need affection. Strong relationships are important precursors to every positive outcome that we know, whether it's social, cognitive, physical, labor market later in life. And so to really base the discussion on research and strong research to be able to work with our policy audiences and help them understand how and what is important for education. For us, that starting with that research and kind of debunking some of these claims was a really, really important, uh, a really important issue. And so just the three, the three big conclusions we had is we're mostly around policy and research, but one is that very simply because we're an international organization, it became very, very clear that we need to refine measurement. If you work on digital literacy or digital skill, I'm sure you know this, 
everybody has their own definition. And that's within a country. So if you're trying to compare research from across countries and everybody's defined it in a different way, you have no meaningful way of understanding that and, or of tracking trends. So, and that's, a, that's just a precondition for understanding what's happening. The second one is thinking about, well, in a policy environment, what, do you, what are we going to do to address this? And in most countries, it's incredibly fragmented. So just thinking about how to protect children from online safety or protecting children online, it, on average, there's six or seven ministries involved in that with many, many different frameworks and many different groups of stakeholders, and they don't always talk to each other. And so that, that's a huge one. And the third big, you know, the big point that we lead with is, is really including the voices of everybody in this kind of work because it's very important to go back to the research, but it's equally important to talk to the kids and their parents and find out what's worrying them and, and also what they're excited about because kids are the biggest users of new technology and they're the ones on the front lines in many respects. And that optimism and that hope is something that doesn't always get translated into our policy context where there's often a, a much, much more fear, for example, or worries about children. So that, that's sort of our three big take-homes that we pull from this work. So, so I, I am of the opinion that digital tools are, are the equivalent of contemporary literacy and that, that more is almost always better. But, but I imagine you found some uh, pros and cons about kids' use of digital tools. So could you talk about that a little bit? What, what, are, the, what are the strengths and the weaknesses about the way we're, we're letting children be on the front line? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, there used to be a sort of all-or-nothing argument, you know, like more is better, or no, everything's terrible, and we must at all costs stop children from using the Internet. Um, I think there's a pretty clear agreement now uh, coalescing around the importance of a moderate use of digital tools. Um, so if you look at emotional well-being results uh, from a, a set of different data sets from around the world, or student achievement results, or um, life satisfaction results, what you find is that the kids, it's an inverted use. So the kids who use it the least, or who aren't on it at all, are less satisfied than ones who have moderate use. But conversely, the ones who use it the most, sort of six or more hours a day, are also less satisfied than the ones who have moderate use. So there's sort of, it's been called the Goldilocks effect, you know, not too little, not too much in the middle, um, research from, from Oxford. Um, that seems to be a very clear pattern emerging, not just in emotional well-being, but also in sort of student achievement uh, it work. So that seems to be, you know, there's a sweet spot there for what you're going to get the most out of. And I, and I think it is important to, to think about the positives, you know. There's a, a really obviously huge access to a huge amount of information, connectivity all over the world and the ability to connect to different groups that you might share interests with. If you're a small kid in a small town and you have a particular interest, well, you can find people who are interested in the same thing um, without having to go to a big city, which is, you know, what it used to be in the past. Um, and, of course, it's not even such a, such a new thing. I mean, if, if you talk to any preteen, they've got their friends at school, but they also have a continuation of those friendships online. Um, and that's just a part of their day-to-day, -day, so that they're just, you know, chatting after school or videoing each other. I mean, this is just part of normal life, which is what you were saying. You know, it's, it's something that we just have as part of our lives now. 
And that's something that children have completely adapted to. So that's that's the pro, I would say. Is it's really much, it's very much life as, as normal, and, and it has all these amazing potentials. Of course, the negative is that every time you use uh, a digital device or are in a digital environment, you are exposed to digital risks. They do exist. Um, and it's important to think about how we want to uh, protect children from them, how we want to raise awareness, and how we want to help them manage the risk. Because, you know, it's the old argument around should we protect them so much that they never see the risks or should we let them have a bit of guided exposure so they can understand what they are? That seems pretty clear as well. The research is, is pretty clear that, in fact, being able to sit down with a, with a responsible adult and understand what some of the risks are and how you might want to react to be able to identify them, to tell your parent if you feel uncomfortable, to question or ask for help if you don't know or if you're not sure, those are all really important skills that children need as well. And so protecting them to the extent where they they can't even identify a risk is also not helpful for their well-being. So so tell me a little bit about about the risks that that you think we're protecting children from. There's there's a spectrum from uh, sort of predatory behavior by other human beings to uh, being uh, sort of enveloped in a filter bubble, uh, and, and and those are all risks. Uh, one of the most important risks, maybe maybe not so much in terms of what's scary, but, but in terms of what's likely. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a great distinction. So when we ask countries this, their number one worry is cyberbullying, which is, in fact, of course, incredibly scary. But if you look yes. at the percentage of children who are, uh, you know, seriously or, or actually experiencing cyberbullying, it's actually not a huge percent. It doesn't mean that countries shouldn't be worried. I think absolutely they should be. But if you want to start ranking what is the most likely to least likely? Cyberbullying is not at the top. Um, the top is actually contract risk. So uh, marketing aimed at children, being exposed to inappropriate contact, con- um, content, uh, being, able, being exposed, to, uh, whether it's violent or sexual in nature, being marketed at very young ages, being marketed products that children are able to buy if they're able, if they're able to, if the, if the, if the parental cor- controls haven't been set up, um, those kinds of contract risks, so giving away your data, for example, because you don't understand what it means to give away your data if you're a very young child, those are the risks that are actually much more common uh, and which children face every day. And in fact, from a policy perspective, there isn't a very good response yet to that. Um, and the attention is not really there yet. Uh, that's, that's, that's something we need to, to work on. So, so we're going to close with a with a question that you've got this risk, I'm a parent. Um, what's your advice to me to to balance uh, my interest in protecting my kids with their need to become um, proactive participants in their lives? How do I do that? Talk to them. Um, I mean, talk to them. Honestly, it's uh, uh, of course parents are doing that, but being able to hear what it is that they like also, what it is that they like about their digital experiences, setting up boundaries together, thinking through how you can take advantage of the opportunities and reduce the risks together. 
um, is a really powerful way not only to build digital skills in children, but also to build trust and digital trust uh, between between families, which is which is only going to be helpful as children continue to grow. Well, I, I'm so excited about your research, and we've, we've exhausted our time together, but I'd, I'd love to hear more, and I'm sure other people in the audience would love to hear more. Could you reintroduce yourself um, and tell people how to get uh, in touch with you, and please accept my deep gratitude for taking the time to do this show. Of course. It's been a real pleasure, um, and thank you for your somewhat uh, challenging questions. Always always good to be asked the hard questions. Um, my name is Tracy Burns, and I work at the OECD in Paris, so Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And if you Google Tracy Burns at the OECD, you will find me and, uh, and my email. If there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thanks very much. Uh, and, and thanks again for taking the time to do this. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Tracy Burns from the OECD. Thanks very much, and we will see you back here next week. Bye-bye now. Thanks, Don. Thank you. Thank you.